kind of light way. There are generally two guided metta meditations, perhaps in a 10-day retreat. And yet, the, and then we were encouraged to, if we connected with the metta, to, to do a little metta during our meditation during the day. But it was very, very important for me because I had a very strong judgmental mind and I had a lot of aversion. If you know about the three character types in the Buddhist psychology, I'm an aversive type. So I had a lot of aversion in my early days of practice that was unrecognized, unacknowledged. So the metta practice really was so wonderful for me to give me an antidote to work with some of those difficult mind states that were arising. And for me, not just during the retreats, but in my daily life, in my daily practice, I, I maybe somewhat spontaneously uh, would put my hand on my heart. When I was giving myself a hard time or a difficult time, I would put my hand on my heart and, and remind myself of what was most deeply important to me, which is to be happy, to be peaceful. And I would say the phrases. I'd say, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. May I be free of this aversion, of this difficulty. And I would say it many, many times through the day, uh, and also when I was having difficulty with others as well, I would send the metta out to them. So it was really an important practice to me, for me. And then in the later years, I did longer, intensive metta practice, which helped me go deeper into the understanding of the practice. So it's been very, very important, and I love coming here and really supporting you and connecting you uh, into this practice as well. And as I said in the first night, you know, really together developing this uh, field together, which we all are part of here this week. So this metta practice is one of the Brahma-viharas. And Brahma-vihara are Sanskrit words for the divine abodes or the home of Brahma. Brahma vihara. Vihara is home or, or abode. And it's a practice that really connects us deeply with our innate nature, the place in which we can contact our deep goodness that we are. And our metta, when we are connected with the metta, we are actually connected to our nature, to our Buddha nature, because this is really the source of our love. This is the source of our connection with others in this pure and caring way. So this practice really has the potential as we go deeper and kind of dig deeper into our own heart and our own being to really connect us to the truth of who we are in our most innate nature. But the difficulty is that we are so identified with the belief that we are separate and we're small and we're disconnected from that benevolence that is here. And we get identified with this belief and because of that, we start to become small and defensive and protective and frightened, and we lose connection with the ground of our being. 
We lose connection. We get cut off from the source of our love. And we go into the identification, into the beliefs, into the ideas of who we take ourselves to be. And when we do this, we feel so much of the pain, so much of the contraction from this identification itself. Even with that, the love love is still capable of flowing, which when we reflect on that in itself is really a very beautiful thought, that even when we take ourselves to be separate and small, we are still capable of love. We are still capable of connection. But yet, until we really awaken from that belief that we are separated from the nature that is here, we won't really know the deepest capacity that we have for love. And these practices really guide us, point us, allow us to connect more deeply with that possibility, with that capacity as we continue our practice. This is a quote from Nisargadatta, one of the great sages from the last century of India. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love for yourself, You know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious cycle. Only self-realization can break it. And he says, go for it resolutely. Only self-realization can break it. And what that means is that we break this identification. We break the belief with the storyline of who we take ourselves to be. Whether they're negative and critical and painful ideas, or even whether they're prideful or arrogant or kind of building up kinds of ideas about ourselves. Any kind of idea, ideation that we create around that is going to be some kind of obstacle to the flow of the immense capacity we have for our love and our kindness. So when we're practicing metta, we're really cultivating the purity that is already there. And sometimes it's hard to believe this, I know it was hard for me to believe it for a long time. Me, pure, you know, I had purity. You know, that was just too much. But it is true, this is what the Buddha tells us, that this connection, this knowing, this realization is our birthright. That is who we are. So doing this practice allows us to uncover and overcome the obstacles that block this flow of love that we are, that we are already. So tonight I want to talk a little about some of these obstacles. 
to help us identify them in our practice here, our practice this week and after this retreat, and to see if through that identification of some of these obstacles we can begin to overcome them so that we're not quite as caught up and not feeling the pain that arises from when we're caught up in these obstacles. When we teach the Brahma-viharas, there is a category that is called the near enemy. In this case, the near enemy to metta. And what that means is that there's a mind state that actually disguises itself as metta, as loving kindness. And the near enemy for loving kindness is what's called self-possessed love or attached love. I think we all know what that's like. I don't think I have to kind of describe it to get your knowing of it. I think we all know what that feels like when we get caught up in wanting something for ourselves, wanting things to be a certain way, getting very attached and identified for the way things need to be in our relationship with others. This self-possessed love is still love. It's still an expression of love. The love is there, but it is a distorted love. It is not a pure flowing of metta, of loving kindness. For most of us, meaning human beings, for most human beings, when we get close to what we love, we want to possess it. We want it for ourselves, whether it's a person or a thing, Whatever that is, we want it. We want to keep it. We want to hold on to it. We want to get closer to it or, or somehow you know, completely merge with it in some way. And this desire can become very strong. And if it's not seen for what it is, we can also get caught up in its opposite, which is aversion and anger. Desire and aversion are two sides of the same coin, the same coin of In Buddhist language, we call it grasping. We want what we want, and we don't want what we don't want, and we get very caught up in these two forces of mind. This is what egos do. This is ego. This is the position of ego, getting caught up in desire and aversion, which is is held in the environment of delusion or ignorance because we don't see clearly. It's not wrong that we do this. We all do this. It's not wrong. It's not bad. But we need to understand it because it's really through the understanding that we can begin to be released from these forces of mind. So what the Buddha taught us as a way to understand what actually happens when we get caught in this attachment, this attached love, is that the pure flow of loving-kindness gets tainted with tanha. Tanha is the Pali word for grasping or for craving. It's as if beautiful colored dyes are poured into a, a fresh, cool pond, and then we get distracted by the colors and the beauty of the dye, and we can't see very clearly to the bottom of the pool. 
It, dist- it distorts our clarity. We can't see. We get pulled away towards something that we think is going to bring us a certain happiness or a pleasure. This tanha is actually a very important word in the Buddhist teachings because it's what is called in the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is tanha. And literally, tanha is translated as thirst, as in dryness or drought, that kind of thirst where we're really craving for some kind of moisture or, or, or nourishment because we feel so dried out. And from that, what arises is a kind of a compulsion or a, 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 a wanting or a drivenness or an ambition or an um, addictive kind of quality. We want that thing. And when you hear these words, what I want you to hear is the strength of the drive in them. It's a, it's, a, it's a force in the mind that pulls us away from where we are. It pulls us out of our experience towards that thing or that person or that situation that we think is really going to bring us that quality of fulfillment. We lose connection with our own resources, with our own uh, resource of, content, of con- uh, contentment. And we think it's out there somewhere. And so we get driven we get pulled out. This is, the, this is the tanha. This is what the metta gets tainted with, gets uh, filtered with. So we, we can't really experience this beautiful flow of still, quiet, connected, and caring love. Another definition I like very much is for tanha is the fever of unsatisfied desire. The fever. See, it's, you kind of get the sense of what this tanha is. It's, it has some heat in it. It has some charge in it. You know, and, and, and with that, it also has restlessness and agitation. The mind isn't quiet. The mind isn't so still. There's a, the agitation of being pulled out of ourself towards the other, whether that other is a a person or a thing. So think for a moment, maybe even here today or yesterday, just this quality of the difference maybe in your own metta practice of when the metta, you may have connected with metta in kind of a quiet or a steady way where you just feel a uh, a very light and natural connection to the loving kindness towards yourself or towards your benefactor. And the times where there was more kind of agitation or, or desire in the mind of wanting something to be happening, wanting something different, uh, having some expectation for how your experience should be or what your quality of love should be, some demand or... Uh, expectation on yourself, and then just sort of sense in the kind of agitated quality or the restless quality of mind and, and, and being that arises with that. Because with that, what brings that is this tanha, the grasping in the mind. And this is actually what creates that, that coloration or that filter over our heart. So we're not a- able to feel that, that pure flow. 
So this tanha is an energy that propels us into seeking. We're seeking out. We go outside of ourselves to have something, to possess something for me. It's a mind state where we're quite bound up in self-interest. What's in it for me? It's a kind of, you know, well, if I get involved with this, with this, with you, or with this situation, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? You know, is a kind of a very conditional kind of love or or engagement. One of my teachers said, "Very rarely do we look at another person or thing without relating first and primarily to ourselves." And I really think that's so true, you know, how that self-referencing comes in so quickly. What am I going to get out of it? What's in, what's in this for me? You know, how is this going to support me or help me? You know, it's something, something to consider as we engage here with our, the categories that we're bringing in the metta or with the people here on the retreat or different situations that arise in the mind. How much is that sense of me wrapped up in what's occurring here? When this tanha arises, we collapse into a small self and we feel driven and dependent on having that person or that thing. Why does this happen? How does the, how does the tanha work in this way? It's because we believe, we're identified with an idea about ourselves that we're deficient in some way, that we're incomplete in some way. We're disconnected from our source, from our innate nature that we are. And we think that getting what we want is what's going to give us that sense of completion. And when we get it, you know, we feel, ah, how wonderful. You know, in a way, this is what we call the honeymoon phase of a relationship. You know, you really feel you're getting what you want. And some people think that this is what's the way it's going to be for a long time, <laughs> particularly people who are under the age of 21. <laughs> but some of us, you know, it takes us a while to learn this one. But we think that this is the way it's going to be, and we know that it changes. We know it's not going to last. This is temporary. Because everything changes. And unless we're really connected to the source of our own love, we're going to just keep collapsing again and again and again because we're not going to be fulfilled with the conditions that we are expecting in any kind of a relationship. It's not going to happen. I was just with a community of teachers last week and we were discussing different things. And one uh, monk, uh, Ajahn Suchito, who was there, he said, we just ought to accept the fact that relationships are dukkha. (laughs) Relationships are suffering. That's just the way it is. And I think, you know, even though it's kind of obvious to us, it's very good to be reminded, particularly by a monk, You know, somebody who's been in ropes for 30 years or more. You know, relationships are dukkha. So we start there. We start there, and we really try to examine what's actually occurring that the dukkha is arising. How are we 
projecting out? How are we getting pulled out into these expectations, into demands of certain conditions being in place so that we can love? This has to happen before I can love you fully. This isn't metta. This isn't metta that we are trying to connect with here. This is a conditional love, an attached kind of love. We're hoping that we may be able to contact a kind of connection within ourselves which is independent, totally independent, not dependent on anything except having a a body and being alive. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, even when I say it, I just think, oh, that would just be so refreshing to know that quality of love that is so totally and completely independent of anyone else, of anything, of any situation, and that my heart stays open. This is the possibility. This is the capacity that we have as human beings. This tanha is supported and nourished by ignorance, by delusion, by not seeing clearly, because it tells us that we are small, that we are separate, that we are incomplete, we are deficient beings, and we have to find something to make ourselves whole. Something, and that's something we, we believe is out there or something that we're going to find in here that is separate from us now. But the truth is that it's not separate from us now. And the belief, this belief colors our world like wearing colored glasses. It colors our thoughts, our feelings, our intentions. And then we see in a distorted way. We're not seeing clearly. So we're really working with this, with our own mind. It's only our own mind that is creating the obstacle. There's nothing else that cuts us off from our own source. The teacher Nisargadatta, who I just mentioned, also said, the mind creates the abyss and love crosses it. That's what we're attempting to accomplish here, crossing the abyss that is created by our own mind and crossing that with love, contacting the loving kindness that is already here in our own heart. The metta practice, the metta meditation, has the potential to call up our connection with this reliable source. Today, I remember saying to somebody in one of the groups, you're going to have to dig deep for this one. This person was feeling a lot of anger towards the situation, and I said, you're going to have to dig deep. And what I meant was digging deep, deep in the being, deep in who this person is, so that he can contact the source, this, this fountainhead of his own clarity, of his own love, so he could see more clearly. This is really when the, when the, when the lenses are cleaned, 
This is what allows us to see the goodness in ourself and the goodness in others. One of the reflections that we do in the metta meditation is to reflect on the fact that all beings want to be happy. That all beings want happiness. Every being who is walking on this earth right now wants to be happy. Whether big or small, people who are in happy states or in suffering states, every being (coughs) wants to know this. And so when we feel difficulties and challenges and obstacles and blocks with others, sometimes it's so helpful to remember that all of us want happiness, the deepest part of who we are. And that happiness means we are connected to the truth of our being. We all want that. And I really believe that that is why we are actually on this earth right now, to really discover the truth of who we are. When our heart really opens in that way, we do and can feel the connection. It's a real feeling, an energetic quality of connection with other. We feel a tenderness, a joy, and a pleasure in that open-heartedness. We like that. Yeah, that's, we like ourselves, don't we? We really like the feeling. We like who we are. That's how we want to be because something, quite nat- something feels quite natural when we're in that state. And we can feel this. We can really allow the fullness of our heart and the expression of our heart And it doesn't have to have any attachment or grasping in it. It's just the pure flow of that feeling and that connection. I remember for a long time, early in my practice, somehow I got the idea that any time I felt pleasure, I was attached. And I'm not sure where I really got this idea. It was somehow any kind of pleasure meant I was attached. So, because I shouldn't be feeling pleasure, it's sort of like, you know, be still and balanced and equanimous, not even, you know, just notice it's pleasure, 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 not to get engaged in it, not to get involved in it. And then as I started to really explore this, I saw that, yeah, I even pleasure, this good feeling, this open-heartedness, this also arises and it, it stays for a while and it passes away and I can allow that without any kind of grasping, any kind of attachment. And I, and I wonder sometimes, I wonder if people think that they can't really, you know, let the good feeling come out because there might be some attachment there. I might get attached to it. And I, I just want to say that I think it might be worth reflecting on to ask yourself whether you're afraid of getting attached. If you really allow your heart to open, if you really allow this fullness of your being to come up, come about, is there some fear that you'll get attached? Because it might be that that fear might hold you back a bit, might keep, contain you in some way. You might think, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fall into that difficulty, so I'm not even going to go close to that. But yet, when we really allow that feeling, we're really, we're really giving ourselves permission to be authentic, to be true in a certain way. 
And we have to do that because if we're afraid of being attached before we really allow the feeling to arise, we're not going to experience the fullness of the feeling of an open heart. So what I suggest is to allow the heart to open and then see if there's attachment in it. Kind of do it that way around. You know, no, be very mindful and attentive to the arising of the tanha, of the grasping, because we do want to see if we're getting attached, if the grasping is arising, because then we're getting fixed again. We're fixing ourselves into a small kind of ideation of who we are. Oh, I'm somebody now with an open heart. But we know that we have to be careful of that because it doesn't usually last so long. Things change. So we're not trying to reach a particular state. We're not trying to have a particular experience that then is going to stay, like sort of cultivate ourselves to a point where now I feel this joy and this pleasure and this open-heartedness and this connection and this kind of bliss of, of, of knowing who I am. That's just another idea. The metta flows in many, many, many different kinds of ways. And any kind of expectation or idea we have about how the metta is going to feel it can perhaps be another limitation, another obstacle. So we allow the experiences to express themselves and then to change in the way that they will. And then we see, well, how is the tanha arising? Or is the tanha arising about the state itself? And if it is, we can notice that, acknowledge that, name it, and perhaps soften around it and let it go so that we don't get, don't make ourselves small again, again through that grasping idea. So in this way, we just keep our eye on it because when the heart opens, when we start to feel the connection, it is wonderful. It is beautiful. And we love it. And it is okay <laughs> to love it. To love the feeling of the open heart. So that's the near enemy of metta. The attached love, when the tanha taints the flow of metta. What we also teach when we teach the um, metta is what's called the far enemy. So we have the near enemy and the far enemy. And the far enemy is the opposite mind state of love. And so the opposite mind state of love is somebody call out hate aversion indifference isn't isn't totally this one but anger fear so this this contracted state the state of aversion of anger which is also fear And this is also a form of tanha. It's just the other side of the coin. The tanha, it's the grasping where we hate, we don't want. So the the fists are still tight and we're pushing away that which we think is not going to bring us happiness. That which we are in resistance to and rebellion to, we don't want it because we think it threatens us in some way. This aversion 
is experienced through a host of afflictions, some of them which have been said, anger, impatience, judgment, condemning, fear, anxiety, resistance, despair, all these kinds of contracted states, even boredom, which could be the indifference, and the boredom where we just, you know, we don't want to be in contact. We're just kind of caught up in a state where we just don't want anything, and we're just kind of stuck in this not, not being able to make contact with anything. Nothing seems interesting. We're kind of indifferent to everything. This, this is a tightening, contracted energy that arises because we have fixed views about what we believe is going to make us happy. And when something arises that con- contra- con- contradicts that view, we want to push it away. We feel resistant to the way things actually are. We don't like the way things actually are. And this is what distorts our ability to see clearly. We can, again, we can't see things very clearly when we're caught up in this state. And this is a very painful mind state. We all know that. It's very painful. The heart's very closed. We can actually sometimes feel a physical blockage around our torso where we feel closed off and disconnected. And I really think that the reason the aversion and the hatred are so painful is because we are actually disconnected from ourself. And we're disconnected from our own resource of who we really are, of our, of our, of our Buddha nature. I think the disconnection itself is very painful and creates a lot of tension in our bodies, in our minds. And when we don't know how to reconnect with ourselves or with another or with a community or whoever, whoever it is in a caring way, we seem to engage in three strategies. One is that we turn the anger out. We attack, blame others for our pain because we, we don't really want to feel it. And it's easier to project it out. And oftentimes, in that case, we can take little or no accountability for what's going on in the situation. That's one, turning the anger out. The second one is that we'll turn the anger in and we attack ourselves for the way we are. We'll blame ourselves, we'll judge ourselves, and sometimes this can form into self-loathing. There's so much attacking and hate that goes inward. And then we don't actually see what's going on outward and how see the situation very clearly and how others may be involved and accountable in some way. And then the third strategy is where we just deny the whole thing. You know, we suppress, we deny, we hide, we pretend I'm not angry. I don't feel anger. You know, we're just holding it all in. You know that one? And we don't want anybody to see it. We don't even really want ourselves to see it. And this can lead to all kinds of emotional and physical difficulties when we just hold it all inside of ourselves. And of course, any of these three strategies get compounded with guilt and shame and 
more anger, we put anger on top of the anger, aversion on top of the aversion. We get angry at ourselves for being angry, for projecting out, for attacking ourselves, for denying or pretending. And the whole thing just gets so compounded and so complex and so painful. If we can have even the slightest movement to connect with our experience the way it is, this is already a movement of love, a movement of metta. The already the beginnings of the opening of the heart. Just the turning, the gentle and the slight turning towards let me see if I can actually be with my experience, to feel my experience, to know my experience as it is, without denying, without hiding, without judging, without blaming, without projecting, without acting out. Let me see if I can just feel. This is the first movement of love. It's so powerful, that first shift of attention. We also call this mindfulness, but it's mindfulness with the loving attention, with the loving, kind, tender attention to hold ourselves, to embrace ourselves just the way we are. Very, very powerful. And it's like salve on a wound. It's so healing. We immediately start to feel a little softer and more aligned, more in connection with our experience, with ourselves. And then there's the possibility of having access to our deeper resources because we're back, we're present again, we're not so disconnected, and then the pain starts to loosen up. Just that simple turning. And so when we do the metaphrases and we turn back towards ourselves and remember our deepest wish to be happy and contented and safe and at ease, that's already that very powerful movement to hold ourselves, to embrace ourselves with that attention, that loving attention. It's the beginning of the whole shift towards realization. Realizing what is, realizing who, we, who I really am right in this moment, just as I am coming into a place of true acceptance, of true beingness and true authenticity with myself and what is. It may take some time before I can actually reveal that to another. I may still have to protect myself or hide in some way towards the other, but at least I'm starting to reveal the truth to myself. This is the way I am. I'm starting to acknowledge my own sense of limitation and my own sense of humanity. This is who I am now. That is an incredibly loving act. That is the movement of metta. There was a a, a very famous quote from the Buddha that was being uh, sent around the Internet during the 9-11 that that I think we all know by heart by now. When the Buddha said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Hatred can only cease by love. This is the eternal law. Hatred can only cease by love. 
And I think this is a teaching for all of us, particularly here on this retreat as well. Because I know myself, when I did metta meditation, it was very, very hard for me because it made me see all the places I was blocked, all the ways I was closed, all the ways that my heart was not open, the way that I wasn't able to, fl- to connect and care and love others. And it was very painful for me to see that. And so it can be a real setup to then judge ourselves and have aversion towards ourselves and just see that, you know, well, I told you so, you really are uh, this, you know, tiny, stupid little being, you know, whatever it is that we tell ourselves, it can be a great setup for us if we're not careful. And so the practice here, too, is the recognition when this aversion arises, when the judgment or the condemning or or towards ourselves or others, or any way that arises, to see that, to know that, to acknowledge that. It's not bad. It's not wrong. But it takes time. Working through these patterns of aversion and anger take time. I always wish that there would be like a magic wand that would, you know, in the practice, in the teachings that, you know, if I just got it, the anger would just go away once and for all and I'd never have to feel it again. But it's not like that. These patterns are very complex. They're very old. They're very grounded in our early childhood conditioning. And it takes a lot of time. And so one of the loving attitudes that we can have with ourselves as well is the cultivation, I suppose, of patience. Because we know that this will take time. And so the more that I can just keep coming back and acknowledge the presence of the difficulty, of the challenge, of the contraction, of the anger, of the aversion, my inability to be loving, through that acknowledgement... I've already stepped outside of the aversion. I've already stepped outside of that mind state and contacted the resource of my heart, the resource of the nature that supports me to love, the resource of that deeper part of my being that actually can hold my aversion and my anger. I'm already out of it. Maybe not completely, but just around the edges. The metta is right there. The loving kindness is right there. So first, to acknowledge it. To acknowledge the presence of what's happening. I'm feeling aversion or judgment, anger, whatever it is. Just to acknowledge it. And then, once we've acknowledged it, to see if we can actually feel it. It may mean that you stop doing the metaphrases for a little bit because it actually doesn't work so well to try to force the metaphrases through the anger. I don't know if some of you have tried to do that, you know, to try to say, may I be happy, you know, when you're just feeling all this tension and this contraction and, you know, trying to shift the mind state just through the metaphrases. It doesn't really work. You're really, there's a lot of conflict of interest there, you know, a lot of tension building up. So just to let go, let the metaphrases go for a little bit and just feel, see if you can actually bring, then we shift to the mindfulness for a little bit, bring the attention into the body to feel what's occurring there, feel where the places of contraction, places of tension, what's actually happening in the body, how, what's happening to the breath, what's happening in the throat, what's happening in the muscle structure. 
And then as we feel it, then to bring some breathing, some breath, breath awareness, to start breathing and softening, really supporting ourselves to begin to soften. And all of this, we haven't stepped outside of the metta at all. We've just stopped saying the metta phrases, but now we're engaged in the actual um, experience and engagement of metta itself. By attending to ourselves in such a caring and such a kind and tender way, just stepping just a little bit outside of the total aversion attack, and then just finding that place where we can actually hold ourselves with a little bit of care, with a little bit of love. I think it's also helpful to see if we can actually recognize the pain in this state, to actually recognize the dukkha in this state, when we get so aversive either to ourselves or to others. Because I find for myself that if I'm actually able to recognize the pain, that opens the door towards the loving kindness even more. Because when I see myself in pain... (laughs) that makes me feel some tenderness. When I really let myself feel, it's like, wow, I'm really suffering. I'm really feeling some pain here. And again, in those early years, you know, the ability to just put my hand on my heart and, and remember, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And that's what we can do here. If we really recognize the pain in those states of aversion and anger and judgment whether it's towards ourselves or others, maybe that will awaken. This is compassion, actually. This is a flavor of the loving kindness, the compassion when the the love is facing a a kind of a painful situation. It awakens the door of compassion and the door of our loving kindness, the tenderness. And then we can go back to the phrases and say the phrases and, and, and connect in a deeper way to the place where we really do care about our own happiness and our well-being, where we really, really care about coming out of pain and the sense of separation. So this is, takes some time. It takes some time, not being involved in the story when we drop the metaphrases, but to come more fully into the the energetic experience of what's going on. And then we might also want to reflect at that moment, too, that I deserve to be happy. Sometimes instead of saying, may I be happy, sometimes you can be a little bit more assertive and say, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be free of this pain. I deserve to be peaceful because that connects us to our birthright, our birthright for freedom, for liberation, for freedom from pain, freedom from suffering. All of this helps us to connect more deeply to to what's really important for us as human beings, which, which truly is to come out of fear, to come out of alienation, to come out of this, uh, this, uh, this myth that I am a separate, isolated being, cut off from all things, all other things. 
I'll end now with this poem from uh, Susan Florence that some, uh, uh, somebody sent me just recently. It's called Your Journey. It's a very beautiful poem, which I think really describes the journey that we're on here this week. There is a journey awaiting you. It comes in truth and promise when you reach the point of not knowing who you are or where to go. This most precious but painful passage is the journey to yourself. You will travel a place never before visited where you meet unspoken fears and unearthed buried truths. You will climb high and perilous mountains, those that rise up from inside yourself. You will explore forgotten waters held deep in the sea of your soul. You will be stranded in the wilderness and find a way through pathless land. You will be lost before you are found. You will be empty before you are full. You will cry the deep sobs of the earth, and tears of rain will cleanse the house around your heart. In time, because life, like birth and death, knows its own time, your fears and struggles and unknowing will be transformed. You will become a mountain place where eagles soar. You will become a reflecting pool which sees and knows the mysteries of your life. Your heart will be light like a butterfly as you follow the current of its true desires. The flight of the honeybee will be yours as you seek the nectar of what brings sweetness to your daily life. Most of all, you will become who you truly are. Your life will hold truth and promise and meaning, and the heart of the heavens will hold your heart. Let's sit for a few minutes. You will become who you truly are. Your life will hold truth and promise and meaning, and the heart of the heavens will hold your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.